My name is Justin Acuda, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the Waynes Brothers. That's right. We're talking Damon. We're talking Sean. We're talking Marlon. We're talking their sister, Kim. And, of course, we're talking about the Grand Poobah, Keenan Ivory. And... That's just the first generation. There are so many other weigh-ins out there. I mean, I pointed out to Will that there was a whole dramedy TV show called Second Generation Wayans that was not a reality TV show. It was a scripted, regular series about the offsprings of the Wayans brothers. I think Dance Flick stars Damon Wayans Jr., does it not? So Damon Wayans Jr. is very funny. He was one of the leads on New Girl, and he was also on the show Happy Endings. And I think he's very funny. Love seeing him on screen. The Wayans family, what can you say about them? They are responsible for In Living Color, which was considered such a groundbreaking show at the time, still very fondly remembered, and yet also the Wayans Brothers as a brand name, it is not a prestigious brand name. It has oh, no. <laughs> it has the same reputation in certain critical circles as like Rob Schneider. <laughs> first of all, that's the first reason I wanted to bring this topic to the table because of that cognitive dissonance, right? Like they are responsible for, you know, one of the iconic TV comedy shows and they are the Wayans brothers. And I think it's important that to, for people that are either younger or older than us to know that when me and Will were teens, they were omnipresent as a brand of comedy. Yes, and in the 2000s, when they were probably at the height of their popularity in some ways, like they were making big budget major studio comedies, every new Wayans Brothers movie was greeted as schlock. So, uh, did you go back and read any like Roger Ebert reviews where he's like, what is this trash? I, you know, I didn't really because I lived through it. You know, I know what it was like. Another reason why I wanted to talk about them is they are hugely successful black filmmakers and entertainment moguls. You know, I mean, Keenan Ivory, he directed one of the most financially successful comedies of all time, Scary Movie. Damon Wayans, given a lot of notable performances. And also, Marlon Wayans, right now, he is consistently writing and producing and starring in these kind of lowbrow B-movies like A Haunted House that are nevertheless quite successful. Like, he has a he has an assembly line that he's running, and that's interesting. And they've come from nothing to do all of this, which I think is even more impressive as, you know, black performers, directors, actors, who people need to consider that they had to make all of these opportunities for themselves to get to where they are today. Yeah, and I mean, they created a brand. They created an ecosystem. And when we talk about black filmmakers, we often talk about figures like, you know, Spike Lee or Barry Jenkins, the prestige figures, or whenever a black movie wins an Oscar, it's typically something like 12 Years a Slave or Precious, you know, movies about black suffering. And here are guys who have created a whole entertainment ecosystem and they get they get very little respect. So I wanted to delve into the films. And also, I wanted to bring this topic to the table because I watched Fifty Shades of Black not long ago and laughed a significant number of times. But like, if we go all the way to the beginning, I was reminded that uh, Keenan Ivory Waynes got his start producing, writing, and acting with his good pal Robert Townsend in Hollywood Shuffle. And that was like the film that kind of put the foot in the door of Hollywood just a little bit for him, even though it resulted in Robert Townsend getting more opportunities than Keenan Ivory did. Yeah, Keenan Ivory is... 
I guess, the impresario of the family. He and his siblings were born to a working-class family in Harlem. They spent time in the projects. He went to Tuskegee University on a scholarship, and he eventually dropped out to become a comedian. And Robert Townsend, as you mentioned, was a crucial early contact. Hollywood Shuffle was a pretty seminal black film, you know, a, a, a kind of uh, rambunctious Hollywood satire. Made independently. Like, the story goes around that, like, you know, they just uh, subscribed to a bunch of credit cards, and that's how they funded it and got it distributed. Which is funny, because you never hear that story, but you do hear Kevin Smith's tale all the time. Now, Robert Townsend obviously was kind of the breakout star of that, but it was the success of Hollywood Shuffle that gave Keenan Ivory Wayans the opportunity to make his own directorial debut and kind of uh, ground zero of the Wayans brand, which is I'm going to get you sucker. Now, I learned from watching a three hour interview with Keenan uh, for the Television Picture Academy that this was an Eddie Murphy idea that he heard because he was very good friends with Eddie Murphy. And he years later, he's like, I'm going to take this Eddie Murphy idea. And he called up Eddie. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything with it. Go ahead. Go make your movie. Star in it, you charisma dynamo, you. You know, what What can you say about Keenan Ivory as a screen presence? Yeah, he's okay. I think him and Sean both share the uh, straight man personas, that there's not really that much there that you get in a Damon or a Marlin. Keenan Ivory is to the Wayans family as like Harold Ramos is to SCTV. He's the idea man. He's the behind the scenes man. And occasionally, you know, he gets put in front of the camera and he's fine but like and i'm gonna get you sucker i think that he i'm not gonna say he learned that he shouldn't star in movies because he directed and starred in a bunch of films after that but the strengths is not the mugging or the comedy that his brothers can do like this film also sets the template of you know the style of comedy that they often go after is the zazz style which is just like supposed to be joke a minute just silliness throughout. And and I'm going to get you, sucker, which is like a black exploitation riff about a town overrun by crime that it's not drugs. It's everybody's wearing gold chains. <laughs> and Keenan Ivory shows up. He's had a 10-year stint in the army. And now he's going to take back his city, even though he's actually a weakling and he's going to need the help of other more veteran black actors like Jim Brown to save the day. Jim Brown is in it. Isaac Hayes. Also Bernie Casey from Hitman and Cleopatra Jones, as well as Antonio Fargas, who played Huggy Bear on Starsky and Hutch. And let's not forget, there's also a young Chris Rock uh, and a young Damon Waynes in one of the few major roles that he did in a Keenan Ivory uh, Waynes joint. Damon Waynes is very good in this movie, by the way. This movie has a pretty great cast. A future in living color star David Allen Greer is in it briefly as a newscaster. John Vernon is a very good villain in the film. I think the best joke almost belongs to John Vernon, where one of the characters goes, what, John Vernon, you're in this movie? And then John Vernon lists, he's like, oh, well, you know, Shelley Winters was in Cleopatra Jones. <laughs> like, this is not too beneath me. Yeah, no, I agree that uh, that is the best joke in the movie. And in my opinion, it was one of very few good jokes in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> of the five movies that we're going to talk about today, this was the one that I had the highest hopes for because, like, oh. it's a black exploitation spoof and it's like a Zucker Brothers style spoof. I wasn't bored. There were some jokes that made me laugh, like when he, uh, Keenan Ivory, takes a splinter out of his finger, like it's in Rambo 3 in the middle of a gunfight. But yeah, the pacing is definitely off. There's a real dry spell in the middle of this movie. And the style of comedy is as. 
uh, silly and kind of obvious as it would be in later films, but does not come at a rapid fire enough clip. Well, even like potentially good gags, like there's the scene where his mom comes in and has a fight scene. And then like you see her stunt double doing most of the fight oh, scene. Boy, what a moldy joke. It's, it's such a moldy joke and it's not even delivered well. But Keenan Ivory argued in the interview that I watched that the film was a good success. And the reason for it was that there was no pictures that were being released in this way that starred all black cast members because there's very few white characters in this especially when it came out in 1988 yeah and i mean that that is something and the success of this movie got him in living color which in living color was on reruns on the comedy network in canada when i was a kid endlessly endlessly it was i think i i have actually seen i'm pretty sure every episode of in living color do you remember any skits because i remember almost nothing except for the dancers well the dancers are memorable yeah i remember a decent number of skits like i remember homie the clown and uh Mm -hmm. and you know obviously jim carrey was the breakout star so i remember a lot of like fire marshal bill and we're not going to talk about in living color but it was a huge deal when it came out like there was saturday night live and in living color one of them was cool and one of them was not yeah and in Living Color, it was very rare to have a predominantly black TV show. Jim Carrey was often called like the token white guy on the show. And it had uh, Damon Wayans in the main cast. And Damon Wayans was fired from SNL after only mm, like nine-ish episodes, I and think. And he thrived on In Living Color because, I mean, aside from Eddie Murphy, th- there were almost no black cast members who really made an impact on SNL like the the prototypical black cast member on SNL is like Garrett Morris you know somebody who was like right somebody who was like totally sidelined because the writers were all white you know Chris Rock was an SNL cast member he said that you know SNL was great because it turned him into something but when you're black on the show you don't share a common language with the writers or you didn't at the time so if it was him and Rob Schneider Rob Schneider shares a common language he has he has common experiences with the writers that chris rock didn't have growing and up and damon waynes was famously fired because he uh hammed up a performance to drag the attention to him in what should have been just another like second straight guy in a comedic role which you can find online very easily i think it's hosted on the official snl website he just plays a very flamboyant cop during a sketch and that got him uh shit can from the show by the way a lot of gay stuff on in living color uh i mean a lot of gay stuff on in living color or do you mean the entire wayne's filmography all comedies all comedy in the 90s i should specify my god there was so much gay panic just so much what like why in the 90s and like the early 2000s that's all we had that's all we did when we were kids. It's insane. I mean, the only explanation is that like gay people were becoming more and more accepted in society. And so there was this anxiety, this backlash. I mean, the fact that like Mrs. Doubtfire and Ace Ventura Pet Detective came out within two months of each other, you know, the defining like transphobic comedies of all time came out in such close proximity. God, something was in the water. We are not going to talk too much about Damon Wayne's, who I think is the superior Wayne's brother. Um, As an actor, at least. I mean, bamboozled. I mean, what a performance. And he was the one that had the most straight ahead, like dramatic career or like trying to be in that kind of star Eddie Murphy role because he was in The Last Boy Scout with Bruce Willis. Um, He actually had a vehicle that he uh, starred in with Marlon in 1992 called Mo Money that was like something they wrote and was 
comedically tinged, but was also kind of like more of a dramatic thing than they would usually do. And that wasn't that much of a success, so it kind of broke up that duo as well. Also, Damon kind of had a steady stream of comedies throughout the 90s, like Blank Man, Major Pain. Uh, what am I forgetting? Like uh, uh, Bulletproof. Oh, yeah. Who could forget Bulletproof? I mean, that's definitely like an Eddie Murphy career that the other brothers really didn't have. But let's talk about by far the most popular Wayans Brothers property, which is 2000s scary movie. What's up? <laughs> okay, I saw this at a birthday party almost exactly 20 years ago, and oh my god, so fun. Someone gave me like a cam version, and that's what I watched. So not only did it feel like illicit, like, ooh, I shouldn't have this, I can barely make up what's happening on screen. It was also the funniest thing that I had ever seen. And I think by 2000, I don't think I had seen Scream by that point. No, neither had I. I mean, didn't the movie feel dangerous to you? Yeah, man. All those jokes about micro penises and stuff like that. <laughs> and a penis on screen. My God. So this is, of course, a parody of the 90s horror boom. And I mean, I'm not the first person to observe this. Scream was already a self-aware horror movie, so one of the central problems of Scary Movie is trying to satirize a movie that's already in on the joke. Well, the old joke is that Scream's original title was Scary Movie. In retrospect, Scary Movie is no shriek if you know what I did last Friday the 13th, which also came out in 2000, but Scary Movie was the blowout one. And I'm curious to know, I guess because it was giving us like gross out stuff in a silly Zaz style way that no other movie had done at this scale before. Yeah, that must be it because you remember gross out comedies. That was that was the comedy trend, gross out comedies after there's something about America. Yeah, I mean American Pie had come out in 1999 and that had set the template for pretty much the next couple of years. And also there's something about Mary before that. Oh, yes, of course. And so yeah, this combined it with with the Zaz style and I remember like I remember how hyped this movie was. I remember like the drum beat to its release that like oh you're not gonna believe the stuff that's in this movie you're not gonna believe what they got away with in this movie was roger ebert saying that i don't know i just i i can't give you proof i just know that this was the hype and because it was like an r-rated movie you know if you were a kid it just had forbidden fruit all over it i think it had good trailers too Uh, the trailers you mean like whatever uh ghost face doing the matrix (laughs) like ben back (laughs) that was a big trailer moment or the blair witch project parody with the snot coming out of her nose All the classics done here first, I'm sure. And, you know, you're right. The R-rated thing was definitely a big deal, even though that the Zazz-style R-rated thing wasn't new, because Zazz did it when they did Kentucky Fried Movie. The question that I think I kept asking myself more than any other question while watching these movies is, how many laughs is enough? How many laughs is enough to justify, like, this is a movie worth seeing? And Scary Movie has a couple of laughs in it that, I have held close for the last 20 years. 20 years. I mean, watching it again, I did laugh right within the first 30 seconds when they do the classic like, oh, uh, Ghostface calling on the telephone and then she farts and he's like, what was that? She's like, oh, I farted. I hope you wouldn't hear. I'm like, <laughs> that was pretty funny. Fart but joke. I mean, okay, I know it's gay panic, but the, the glory hole scene. Well, I think that's because it's also taking it so far. Most gay panic jokes wouldn't show you cock and balls. And the Waynes brothers do all the time. If they can whip out some prosthetic testicles, they're all for it. There is no shame in their comedic presence, which you get in a lot of these dude bro films is the idea of like, oh, you know, we're better than this. Like, you know, we're, we're not going to debase ourselves in which the Wayne brothers say, 
if it's going to make a laugh, we are willing to do it full stop. And, you know, another one of those historically funny scenes, a scene that absolutely killed at the birthday party I was at, was the sex scene at the end where he takes off her panties and she's got the gigantic bush and he pulls out a weed whacker. So when he comes and she gets blown into the ceiling... I only noticed this time that there's a cut to the guy, like, looking, like, so, uh, I like, know. deflates <laughs> in a horrifying body horror way. I actually had to go back. That is really funny, okay? <laughs> like, that is very funny. Anytime, the, like, I did that was up joke, that scene made me laugh when I saw it in the movie, and, like, the mask changed, like, a tongue sticking out. I mean, there are so many other gags in the movie, like, during the during the fight at the end where she starts river dancing for some reason <laughs> that don't really hold up frankly no I, here's the thing about the Wayne's brothers movies especially their parodies is that while Zaz will use the structure of for example a dragnet or an Elvis movie to string gags usually in a Zaz movie it's not about kind of accentuating what the audience knows to make it go to comedic effect and that's what the Wayne's Brothers parodies do which is not really what I like when it comes to these kind of you know uh, we said it before in our spoof movies when I say spoof I mean more like Mad Magazine style gags than I mean genuinely making fun of something that people know because there's not really that much comedy there you're right they don't really have a satiric angle on horror movies and i do, i also don't sense that they have a great deal of affection for the 90s horror movies either it's not like young frankenstein where like mel brooks clearly loves the universal movies 100 percent, yeah. yeah and i mean do people call mel brooks young frankenstein a spoof movie it technically is right i mean it is but nobody ever says that even though it's as spoofy as spoof can get yeah but like with scary movies you get these beats that is just assuming you've seen this stuff before and look how ridiculous it is because we're taking it to the next level. That's where the joke is. In the moment, I can see how funny that is because it's so transgressive. But watching it now as an adult, it's the dumber, most base stuff that makes me laugh more than references to other things. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, it's arguable that the reference to other things is 100% from the screenwriters who worked on this, Jason Freeberg and Aaron Seltzer, <laughs> who would go on to do that awful thing as a career. I don't think they really uh, contributed to the script, actually. I think I think they were just there as a, like a contractual obligation. It, did you? Oh, did they say that in an interview? That, they, that I think did? I did see that. Although, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't want to slander Friedberg and Seltzer. Take away their one achievement. <laughs> Being involved with a scary movie franchise. I mean, if people want more of our thoughts on Scary Movie 2, we did a whole podcast about it on our Patreon. Oh, God. Now that's a piece of shit. Now, Scary Movie 3, though, gold, because they got the Zaz. They got the real flavor. Wait, when I say Zaz, I mean because they got David Zucker. <laughs> is, is David Zucker the uh, conservative one? Yes, he's the one who did An American Carol. Yes, uh, classic. But he can still make uh, a head bonk like no one other. And actually, that movie has a whole Eight Mile parody, which is just confusing. <laughs> Remember Eight Mile, guys? <laughs> the famous scary movie, Eight Mile. But let's move beyond scary movie into the purer wayne's brothers territory late style and i'm talking about white chicks well the wayne's brothers are masters of the high concept you were talking about kind of the audacity of some of the jokes in their movies they're guys who will you know whip out a prosthetic dick if it'll get them a laugh well the later movies they are like the dumbest ideas possible for a movie and then it's like but what if you actually made that into a movie and you have to respect that on some level it's honestly people sitting around just laughing 
like, you know, friends making each other laugh by saying, could you imagine if we did this? Well, let's talk about White Chicks, which is not my favorite of of these two. (laughs) But White Chicks does have some laughs in it. The plot, as I'm sure you all know, involves Sean and Marlon as FBI agents who have a case where they've got to accompany a pair of rich socialites to the Hamptons. And, you know, these two are, they're a real Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie type of character. And the girls are going to be bait for the kidnappers. But for reasons not worth getting into, Sean and Marlon end up Mrs. Doubtfire style. Uh, disguising themselves as white chicks and you've seen the picture they they look freakish they look absolutely you know totally just hideous i think the issue with white chicks is that it's not rated r so they can't go as far as they do in their other films for the laugh it plays it almost too straight for the first 30 minutes i was on board with this movie i was laughing okay i thought this is a really funny premise wait, wait but until 30 minutes in that's when terry cruz comes in right and then from that point on terry cruz is the like inarguable bright spot of the movie whenever terry cruz is on screen terry cruz is in this movie what joey brown is in some like it hot he's the guy who uh is in love with one of these two and doesn't realize it's a man and keeps trying to fuck this person but um you know that premise doesn't do justice to his performance, which is just so committed, so intense. Yeah, it's you would not get any other performance than from Terry Crews, who he doesn't even go up to 11. He's just off the scale in this thing. I'm surprised the cameras could just capture it. It wasn't just like a blinding white light whenever they put it on him. And the main issue, like I said, is that it's too straight. They want to get some lessons. They want people to learn things. No, don't do that in a movie like White Chicks. Don't be 109 minutes. That is a brutally long running time painful especially when like you hear the joke in the first 30 and the joke's basically over and it's just the same joke for the rest of the movie the main joke is just like can't you believe that people buy them as white ladies okay that's fine but we need to move on to basically that concept taken to the extreme with little man yeah okay little man i liked thumbs up okay and what is the difference between little man and white chicks will i don't know if i can accurately say what the difference between little man and white chicks is except that i laughed all the way through little man but i think i think it's because like the premise is even dumber and it's exploited even more i mean number one like the fact that anyone buys <laughs> horrifyingly cgi'd marlon waynes on a little person's body as a baby like that's the main joke there as justin mentioned Marlon Wayans, his face is digitally superimposed on a little person's body. And not like a little, little person. Like, he's a couple feet tall. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, he's just a regular little person. And he is a thief. He leaves jail. He's got a a partner played by Tracy Morgan, and they do a jewel heist. There's a double cross with the boss played by Chaz Palminteri. What matters ultimately is that Marlon Wayans disguises himself as a baby and leaves himself on the doorstep of Sean Wayans and Carrie Washington, who are an affluent young couple who want to have a baby. And so they take in uh, Marlon Wayans as this baby, and Marlon Wayans looks simply like Marlon Wayans, but as a baby. He's got a fully adult face. A fully adult dick, too. Oh, my God. I laughed Which so hard. Which in any other movie, though, 
Like, if this had been rated R, that dick would flop right out. And you'd see it on camera. Yeah. They're not afraid to show that. You should see it. You know, there are, there are scenes where it's Marlon Wayans' face digitally superimposed on a person. And then there are other scenes where it's just Marlon Wayans dressed as a baby. <laughs> yeah, like over someone's shoulder and stuff like that. And he's got Marlon Wayans, like, torso. Like, he's got and packs. Marlon Wayans is committing to this performance. He is scared that he will be lost in the CGI. So he's going all out. I don't think I've ever seen mugging like this. <laughs> It's so, so intense. And like every scene is the basest, stupidest comedy where like there's a woman who has giant tits and she's like, oh, do you want to sit on my lap? And then it's an extreme close up of Marlon Wayans face. And he's just like licking his lips. (laughs) His eyes are bugging out. And what can I say? I'm laughing. I'm laughing. I mean, when the dog pisses Marlon (laughs) Wayans baby face. It keeps getting funnier for me as it goes along because there are scenes where like he's on the schoolyard and he's talking to the other little kids. The reality of the film gets punctured very quickly where he begins as a baby in diapers. And by the end of the film, he's playing football. And you're like, wait a minute. What what how what am I supposed to believe here? Okay, and in White Chicks, there are lessons learned, and there's a story and everything, and it's semi-committed to it. At the end of this movie, I don't know if this is incompetent filmmaking or if it's actually intentional. When the little baby Marlon Wayans, you know, his identity is revealed to Sean Wayans, and the two of them have a moment where they're like, you know, maybe we really do love each other in some way. You know, maybe you are a good dad. Maybe you are a good son. It's so fake and so unconvincing that I found that really funny, too. I was confused by the ending, which seemed like there's another CGR Marlon Wayans that implies that he had sex with Carrie Washington, I guess? Oh, oh shit, yeah. So there, there are some rape jokes in this movie. I should... Some rape? There are a lot of them. Yeah, I should warn the viewer. But there's also John Witherspoon chewing up the storm as old grandpa. Oh. Who thinks the baby's out to get him. I don't know. Extremely funny movie. The Wayans Brothers... I, I watched this movie, it's like, you guys are gods. <laughs> I mean, because that's what leads us to Fifty Shades of black and this is part of the marlon wayans new wave that's been happening over the last 10 years i don't quite know what the status of the wayans brothers as an institution is it seems like keenan ivory isn't really directing movies anymore i don't know what he's up to right now and it seems that marlon has kind of broken out on his own he makes a lot of stuff for netflix a haunted house was the one that played theatrically and did pretty well and he still appears in dramatic stuff as well right because he was in on the rocks the sofia coppola joint yeah he and, he, and he's good in it, too, but he's not as good in it as he is in Little Man. <laughs> I mean, if it was a CGI baby, uh, Marlon Wayans, you would probably enjoy it more, right? I mean, Fifty Shades of Black, I laughed, but it was also like, I haven't seen Fifty Shades of Grey, so I, I assume these are all scenes they're making fun of from the movie. Yeah, we really don't need to get into the plot of this one. I mean, But there is a scene where Marlon Wayans goes, I've had blue balls all night, and then he pulls out. Two gigantic testicles. Yeah, and that's the thing. Again, it comes back to that question, how many laughs is enough? And I watched Fifty Shades of Black with the lowest of low expectations. For the first hour, I was laughing pretty regularly. I, I gotta say, if you're watching it on Tubi, that's sometimes that's all you need. So is the kind of summation that we're making at the end here is that the Waynes brothers do have value, even though that many people would you, lead you to believe that they don't, that they uh, give only the lowest common denominator and should be ignored for attempting to do that. Well, I do wish they were a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I do wish that a movie like Scary Movie or a movie like White Chicks had a little more bite. But nevertheless, collectively... They have uh, contributed many world historically funny moments to film and television. And can I say, too, like, 
who has who has generated more laughs overall, Mel Brooks or the Wayans Brothers? Interesting question. Yeah, that we're not going to answer. Interesting here. question, huh? <laughs> Probably the Wayans Brothers. Let's be honest. I think so. I think so. I mean, the Wayans Brothers may have never made a movie as good as Blazing Saddles, but. Um, <sighs> What can I say? Uh, as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Conrad Falco. And he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, my wife has started a movie club with some of our friends, and I am a little bit nervous about suggesting older movies, wondering if I'm going to turn people off, especially since the club is focused on women and LGBTQ stories. But at the same time, I feel like we can't have truly fruitful conversations if we only watch movies made in the last 10 years. My question is this. How do you convince people to try watching an older movie? And what do you think is the value of watching older movies in general? Keep up the great work, Conrado. Well, we try to do it every week on a podcast called The Important Cinema Club, where we try to make the classics come alive. (laughs) The classics like Little Man, White Chicks. Wait, how long was that? Was that 10 years ago? Scary Movie definitely was. I mean, uh, as far as the subject, you, you mentioned in your email that like LGBTQ stories, there's a lot of movies that are more than 10 years old that um, they would probably very much enjoy if you could get them to watch. I would think, like, for LGBTQ stories, surely you would be interested in the history of the LGBTQ identity and movement. I mean, there are many movies particularly in the 80s and 90s, that go some way towards chronicling that history. And, you know, a number of them uh, may be, quote-unquote, problematic by today's standards, which could lead to a fruitful discussion, like, as a discussion group. But it depends on what kind of movie club it is. Because if you're just watching movies to just, you know, pass the time, and they just want a fun time, it's tougher, like... You don't really want to challenge your audience in that sense. So it all really depends on the people and how you or you know what they like. Because if they don't want to watch anything older than 10 years, it sounds like they probably just want, you know, just a fun, non-challenging evening at the movies that everybody's watching probably from their own homes because you're quarantined because a global pandemic is going on. Which, you know, you don't really want to hold it against them for that. That's fine. But like if you're doing an LGBTQ-themed movie club, the way to sell it, I think, would be like, not only are some of these movies entertaining, but they are historic documents. And if you're doing a movie club like that, you probably want to learn something, right? So so this is a way to learn. I would always say that if you want to get people to watch older movies or sell it to them, try to give it as much context as possible. Not to be like, show off you or be like, you know, I know this stuff about the movie, but just like why you think they should watch it, or maybe you haven't watched it, why you want to check it out as well. It would probably help if you haven't seen the movie, because then everybody's discovering the film together, as opposed to like, this is great, this is why you should watch it. It's like a fine balancing act as well uh, when it comes to, you know, sharing movies with people, uh, especially when you're doing it online like that. You know what I would say, though, like, if you wanted to sell somebody on the concept of classic movies, like black and white films, old films... I would say show them any short film by Buster Keaton. Mm, Definitely. Show them The Goat. Show them one week. It's 20 minutes long. It's all killer, no filler. And they are stunningly modern. If it's somebody who thinks they don't like old movies, I don't know how they could not like that. And if they're like, well, all the movies are going to be like that, right? You're like, holy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That's a problem. (laughs) But aim for entertainment. 
uh, when it comes to these kind of groups. Don't aim for like, we should watch this because it's historically important because I think you'll have some ruffling of feathers in that way. <laughs> so, you know, uh, best of luck and I hope that it goes well and just try to sneak them in and don't try to force it or be like, it's my choice, we're watching this because that never goes well. Anyway, thank you very much for the letter, Conrado. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We're talking about another notable auteur Brian De Palma, through the lens of one of his biggest hits, The Untouchables. Brian De Palma is like uh, Martin Scorsese or Stanley Kubrick in that we will probably never do an episode on him, but we, we will piecemeal his filmography through our Patreon. We did Wise Guys, and now we do The Untouchables. Oh man, what's next? Mission to Mars? Redacted is next. His found footage movie. And by the way, one of us had only seen... The Untouchables for the first time this week. Who could it be? Could it be me or the other guy who's Brian De Palma agnostic? Who knows? You'll have to pay $5 at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club to find out and you get our entire back catalog at the same time. So next week, well, you know, it's logical that after the Waynes Brothers, we've got to follow it up with something that is thematically connected to it. So of course we're doing Bellatar. Who's Bellatar, Will? Bellatar is the celebrated Hungarian art house filmmaker whose most famous film is Satan Tango, which runs, I believe, eight hours? Yep, I think it's eight hours. Black and white, slow, moving camera. Uh, this is one of my favorites. I love Velatar, and I've actually tried to make like short films in his style, because I really run the gamut to slow, methodical, and super fast-paced. Nothing in the middle. Are you familiar with his work, Will? I've seen The Turin Horse, and I like it very much. I've also seen his version of Macbeth, which is not one of his better-known films, but is interesting. Right, the one that's shot on VHS, because then he could run like a 60-minute take, right? Yeah, and it's pretty good. But I've never seen Satan Tango. I remember one time I was in proximity of a theater that was showing it, and they said there would be two intermissions and a dinner break. And I remember thinking, I can't do that today. <laughs> do it some other day and that day never came but i guess it's gonna have to come this week so that's right i don't know i don't know how we're gonna do it but we're gonna do it because we're gonna watch satan tango and probably one of his earlier films because bellatar he's a guy that you know he returns to the same themes and styles quite a bit so that's what we'll be doing next week and until then my name's justin Glenn. i'm will Slime. thanks for listening Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new patrons, who include Chris Aaron Bilebury, Elliot Jones, Michael Denunzio, Greg Sisavdi Bry, Jeff Stiles, Buck Bloomingdale, Ryan LeDuc, and Daniel Reiferscheid. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. And if you haven't given us a review on Apple Podcast yet, we would really appreciate it. So if you could get on there, it takes like one minute and write a positive review. We would really appreciate it. We'd also appreciate it if you followed us on Facebook, you followed us on Twitter, you listen to Will Sloan's podcast, Michael and Us, or you listen to one of the millions of podcasts that I have that include the Bay Street Video Podcast and the Star Wars Podcast. We also have new product at the Gold Ninja Video Stores. I recently collaborated with Dennis Rule, the writer, director, star, choreographer of some of my favorite zero-budget action movies, and I was able to put together the first Blu-ray release of his directorial debut, Unlucky Stars, which is a homage to Hong Kong action cinema. So that can be picked up at goldninjavideo.com and is limited to 500 copies. Oh, and don't forget to become a patron as well. Join us in the Discord and just chat about movies. 
Okay, the infomercial part is done, and we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, you saw a cult classic that I would hear people talk about all the time when I was a teenager, Grandma's Boy. Did you enjoy it? No, I didn't. But it's interesting that you mentioned cult classic, because I remember when Grandma's Boy came out, when it played theatrically, it played very briefly theatrically. I remember seeing the ads and the trailers and just thinking, yeah, what's this? Like, who's this? Who's this? guy starring in this movie no thanks and i think <laughs> the world agreed with me at that time like we all saw alan covert and thought who's that guy isn't he in some adam sandler movies yeah i didn't even make it that far i didn't even recognize him from those movies. people like they're big fans of grandma's boy i've heard this from multiple people throughout the years well i mean it was such a huge flop theatrically but it really did become a huge hit on video and i think it's probably a movie that's better appreciated at home in a haze of pot smoke. Yeah. Other than Alan Covert, didn't you laugh at the hilarious uh, escapades of Shirley Jones and Nick Swartzen? Well, um, the movie had a pretty stacked cast, I gotta say. Doris Robert is also in it. David Spade appears briefly. Rob Schneider. So Alan Covert, who I think is Adam Sandler's best friend in <laughs> Judd real Apatow life. just sat up in his bed being like, I thought I was Adam Sandler's best friend. So yeah, the plot of the movie is, you know, for reasons not worth getting into, he has to move into his grandma's house. And his grandma's two friends are there, including one who's very horny, very horny old lady. And he works at a video game design company where he's uh, working on a new game and you know a young Jonah Hill is there and uh, there are some parties at uh, the grandma's house where people uh, smoke weed I think my ultimate problem with the film is I didn't like Alan Covert I found him really unappealing mm. you know I kind of love the extended Adam Sandler universe the fact that it just exists the fact that Sandler's pals like Nick Swartzen got the star in movies like uh, was it Dickie Larson Charlie uh, Bucky star? Larson born to be a star you're thinking of Bucky Dickie Roberts former child star with David Spade oh my god I can't keep another kind of Adam Sandler friend because like at this point in time like david spade he was an snl alumni but he's defined as friend of adam sandler would you say that as well Oh, i think so him and schneider and like david spade is a huge netflix star now also thanks to sandler like david spade Only because of sandler yeah spade is in like two movies a year now thanks to sandler and i just feel bad for all the snl alumni who didn't get in sandler's good graces like this like Things could have been very different for Victoria Jackson, you know, had she become a friend of Sandler. I mean, who are the people who became friends with Rob Schneider as well? Another SNL alumni, even though he was on the outs for a while, but he's back. He's back. And baby. even when you look at kind of the B list, like Kevin Nealon is in just a ton of movies. Thanks to Adam Sandler. Norm MacDonald shows up in movie after movie. Thanks to Adam Sandler. Tim Meadows is in a ton of movies. This is the extended Sandler universe and they all... You know, they all stay busy. And I think this is one of Adam Sandler's most appealing qualities, the fact that he's loyal to his 100%. friends. 100%. I mean, I love that there is a movie that exists only to have all the rejects in one film, The Benchwarmers, 2006's film, that stars Rob Schneider, David Spade, and John Heater. A movie for no one. Now, I think I like Rob Schneider more than I like Alan Covert. Do you think you would find it uh, odd that you can say with some affection that you like seeing Rob Schneider show up on screen at this late age in your life? This did occur to me, and in fact, it occurred to me for the first time when I was watching Hubie Halloween, mm -hmm. where he, he plays that character who's got a mask on for the first half of the movie, then he takes the mask off grand reveal it's rob schneider <laughs> the crowd goes wild i know i saw that and i was like oh there he is and why do you think that is well when i see somebody like chris Catan show up on screen i'm like oh no make it go away first of all rob schneider is a more appealing screen presence than chris Catan. 
And also, Rob Schneider is the kind of comedian who ages more gracefully than Chris oh Kattan. Oh my god, do not look up photos of Chris Kattan now. They are horrifying. I saw him recently show up just for a cameo. Oh, I'm just getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. But I also am happy to see Rob Schneider now because it's the sense of community that Sandler cultivates. I think Hubie Halloween communicated this very well. It's like everyone's invited to the Sandler party. And I think that like Rob Schneider has also gone through the looking glass and that like he's not famous. He's not going to headline a movie anytime soon unless you know sandler throws him a bone so there isn't that kind of like look at this loser starring in male gigolo and picking fights with roger ebert uh part of his career anymore you're right now he's he's been grandfathered in he's just like part of the scenery in the sandler verse it's like you know i used to feel this way going to see the harry potter movies where it's like there's that british character actor again nice to see them again and i feel that way with rob schneider (laughs) 